netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for taking the time to download the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. Our guest this week is Andrew Jackson, who is VFX supervisor on Christopher Nolan's Tenet. You'll enjoy the discussion, I'm sure. They go a lot of really interesting details. But um, one thing I want to mention is for those of you who got this podcast through your podcast player of choice and didn't visit FX Guide, there's actually a bonus video embedded in the article at FX Guide. It's an interview that we did as part of FX PhD several years ago. Mike Seymour did it with Andrew. And we thought you might enjoy it as a tie-in for this FX podcast episode. In addition to that, um, for those of you who are FX Insider members, we did a, Mike did a bit of a bonus interview audio segment for you, and you'll get an email with a link to that. It's just uh, one more way that we want to say thanks to those of you who have contributed to our FX Insider program, providing money to help keep this website going. You know, this website is still very much a labor of love for those of us. Um, and also uh, just want to say thanks to those of you who reached out via social media or other means to say that you appreciated getting the little bonus articles that we send out uh, every once in a while. We know they're not huge and big and whatever, but uh, it's our way of saying thanks just to show that we really truly do appreciate the support of um, FX Guy. So let's go ahead and cross that interview now. It's Mike Seymour speaking with Andrew Jackson. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, great to talk to you again, my friend. And um, always good to talk to you, Mike. When we were talking in Sydney, five years ago after Mad Max, you said to me, and I wrote it down, you said, I love doing tests and, um, and getting reference, and particularly, you know, good reference. And then you said, which I thought was really funny, you said, the thing is, sometimes good reference doesn't exist, and so therefore you have to make it. Um, and it struck me that that might have been an echo of what happened on this film, because I can't imagine there was a lot of reference for the stuff that you had to deal with on this, I think, magnificent film. Did you approach it from that same attitude of like, uh, I'm going to have to get my hands dirty to understand what's going on here? Absolutely. I think, you know, the, like from the very first, you know, after I read the script um, and just sort of percolating ideas and, and processing what might, what might be required. And, and essentially for this film more than ever, I think it was about working out what on earth the final images on the screen need to be. Um, before we even work, even start thinking about how we're going to pr produce them, we have to work out what they are and what we what we want to treat, achieve. And of course, with Chris, it's always about making things that are um, as much as possible grounded in reality. That you know, he wants to shoot real elements. He wants things to feel and look real. So, um, so that's always our, my starting point. And and. Um, I was after at the time I was actually working on the King and, and working in Sydney, and, and so I was back in Australia for for a few weeks after I'd read the script. And one of the first things I did was go out and um, to a, a place in the bush where we have a small shed, and a and I and in that shed there's a motorbike, and so I was driving my motorbike around on dirt tracks spinning the wheel to kick up dust and filming it so that we could i could do some little experiments with what dust looks like coming off wheels when you try and imagine what that might be like if the if the vehicle kicking up the dust was actually an inverted vehicle and and so the dust would be sucking into the wheels instead of being thrown out as they pulled away so so as you as you say and then you know 
even back in Sydney, like blowing dust with straws and reversing film and, and you know, right from the very start, immediately kind of launching into filming as many ideas as I could come up with for ways that we could, we could um, basically come up with interesting things that were, were real ground in the real world and, and somehow wrong as well, inverted in some way. The, the King is uh, David and Joel Edgerton's film, right? Like it was very small. Yeah. Yeah. How'd you get yeah. from Mad Max to working on Dunkirk? Because that's, I mean, obviously both really brilliant films in their own right, but how did you make that leap to getting to work with uh, Chris um, in the first place? Well, I was, after, after Dunkirk, I was keen to live in the UK for a little while just um, because my family is still here. And, and um, so I was approaching London post houses knowing that in the UK, a lot of the visual effects supervisors come from the post houses. It seems to be the way that it, things are done here. So, um, and I, I spoke to um, various places, but um, Dineg, um, when I spoke to Dineg, they pretty much said, yes, um, we'd be quite keen to um, talk more. And then about a day later, I think this might've been on a, Wednesday, they rang me back on the Thursday and said, can you be here on Monday? And I was in Sydney at the time um, to meet a director. So that was at a time when um, Paul Franklin, who's who's done all of Chris's yeah. film for Dini prior to me, um, was un, unable to do the next one because of his own projects. And um, and so they were keen, they were very keen to find someone to step into that role. And they, when I rang them, I think they immediately thought, oh, maybe this would be a good fit. Obviously, knowing about the sort of approach that I have to visual effects, which is very much from that kind of um, practical, my background is practical effects person as well. So they obviously saw that as a potential. Well, yeah, that was um, one of the things about Mad Max that you'd done so much in camera and not just gone digital where, where uh, you know, obviously one could have. Um, actually, yeah. let me discuss that for one second with you. Like, what is it, and I'm not being argumentative, but like if, if we accept for a second that, you know, obviously I totally uh, appreciate both your and Chris's point of view about wanting to do things in camera, but I should point out that like you're not doing it for real because there aren't actually people shooting at people in reverse. There aren't actually, you know, like it's still, so it's still in a sense, you're, you're making stuff up for the camera. What is mm. it about making stuff up for the camera using real props and real things that isn't able to be emulated? Is there anything that's, in other words, stopping that from, is it a matter of time before computers catch up or is it just like you just really don't think it's even worth the effort? No, no, I don't think, I think there's, um, there's virtually nothing that can't be done now, um, you know, in the computer, in a virtual CG world. I mean, obviously there, there are some things that are, we're still sort of scratching the, the boundaries of the limits sure. of where we, where we get to, but, but at some level, I think you can, you probably agree that most things can be done and and look pretty much photoreal if you put enough effort into it. I think that the thing that we, that Chris and I both feel that you get from from filming real elements is the um, 
it's it's the unexpected, the random, the the thing, the errors almost, the things that you you would never have imagined to put into a shot if you were generating it yourself. The real world brings that to you in 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 sort of spades, really. That there is so much going on that that is is the unexpected and the and the sort of um, yeah, the random events, I think. And that and I think that's kind of the the place that we both come from. I mean, I, I totally applaud what you've done and, and I love it to death. Right? I mean, I'm a huge Chris Nolan fan, right? Like just ridiculously so. But but just to continue this line of discussion for a second, like you obviously took a real plane and ran it into a, uh, a set to for this film. Um, so, in, so I'm going to ask you in a second what you got from that, but I should point out that you are trading off one huge thing, which is you can't do that. 12 different times one after another just tweaking things slightly like you don't have that many 747s to just keep doing it so so it's not as if doing it for real as it were doing it with with real planes doesn't come at a price i'm not talking about money now i just mean like literally logistics so what is it about crashing that plane for example at least that's a good example that you felt yeah. like oh yeah wow that's so justified doing that i'm not i'm not trying to argue against it i'm just curious for your insight yeah no no I, it's it's really valid because a uh, discussion because it you know it's um no one would have looked at that scene and thought oh yeah we should just definitely do that for real with a with a real plane and and you know and i don't think we did either when we were first looking at the script you know the discussion was you know whether we should build miniatures or CG plane, and you know where the crossover is. And obviously, being a Chris film, he would want to shoot a real plane for all the rest of the scene without the crash. So we were already in in that world of wanting a real plane moving around on a tarmac in a place where we could film the scene. So, um, and you know, I guess in in reality, once you're committed to that. And and you know we we went to an old to a um, an airport in in America, Victorville, where they they basically store old planes that are being pulled apart for parts. It's like a an airplane wrecking yard almost. Part of it. It's not all like that. So we went there. We built the set there, and and filmed it on that location. So it turned out it was actually not necessarily more expensive given that you yeah. already needed to have a plane and all the the set and everything to go with it so yeah it was it was more of a um yeah this is a really sensible way of doing it um, i mean on, on a different filmmaker I, I absolutely am not referring to you guys but on different filmmakers say well that's you know like a publicity stunt but but this is not christopher nolan's um i mean he's got a proven track record of and as you have of you know, going for these these shots. And by the way, that airport, I did a little bit of scratching. If I'm not mistaken, I, I had read in some thing that it was a you know, obviously disused plane and stuff. But when I was digging around a little, and I got s s some notes that were saying that they had to reinstall the brakes for the plane because they'd been stripped out. And one of the reasons that it was really important to put the brakes in was apart from anything else, you had to stop the plane as it hit in. But also, if you hadn't stopped the plane, it had gone through what you built and could have wiped out the Mexican president's actual plane, which was in another hangar sort of further back. So this wasn't actually a disused... I mean, I thought it might have been at the plane, you know, graveyard, but this was actually an airport, right? Yeah, it's an, an airport in that they... Yeah, they use it for um, smaller planes, but 
Yeah, I guess um, the majority of the places used for storing planes, either planes that are temporarily decommissioned or permanently out of action. So, but yeah, there were we the set we built was in front of a real built hangar. Yeah, so you didn't want to wipe uh, out the real and, hangar. And it was important that the plane stopped. Yeah. Yes. And, and actually, in fact, it didn't quite stop um, where it was supposed to and destroyed a bit of the set that was needed for the next that sort of interior scene which had to be, we had to kind of pull the plane back a little bit and rebuild the set so that we could film the next bit. Because it wasn't safe so to film in the crushed bit until you'd done it, right? Uh, no, it was, yeah, that's true. We had to um, kind of make it, well, we had to rebuild the wall, but it, was, it wasn't supposed to have punched through the wall because that was another world in there with the vault inside. Which, of course, gets back to your point about random things happening. Because it looked great on film. I mean, there's just no denying. It just looked terrific on film. And it was thrilling. And and to a certain extent, I do think that the fact that it's, for someone that's a film buff, the fact you know it's a real plane actually adds to the, it's like the old days of James Bond, where you're like, how did they do that? And you knew, because there was no CG, uh, that they'd somehow rigged something up for real. the other thing I'd say is, like, it makes complete sense to me, though, I, I'm, again, applauding because you could do it otherwise, that the Kiev um, Opera House, the opening kind of uh, sequence, I think there were, like, 3,500 actual extras. And that's one yeah. occasion where, you you know, you're never going to beat that for just having actual people that are going along with it and acting properly. Yeah. That was magnificent. And ironically, for most of it, they were asleep. <laughs> it would have been... One of the easiest crowd replications you could do. Yeah, yeah, well, I guess, but it still was magnificent having them run through. But if I could, so, so now I'm going to tie in with what we were discussing before, because so in that sequence, there's a pivotal gunshot, which causes some, uh, obviously, some initial uh, inversion to appear, that the audience has got mm-hmm. a first taste of that. And of course, I just thought, oh, well, you just played something backwards. But I also heard that you were actually, or the team was actually, possibly sucking smoke out with kind of like it was actually like a lot of these things that we assumed were shot forwards and then mm. reversed in post were actually either practical or practical and, and visual effects on set. Well, I should uh, maybe premise this conversation with a little bit of um, the, the discussions about what an inverted event actually, what we wanted it to look like. And, okay. And the thing that we came up with was after um, – doing various little tests and experiments, and also just from the script, that the, the idea that the um, an inverted object passing through a, a forwards world would have some kind of impact on the world ahead of it, if you like. So there's a little bit of a... Like a bow wake of a boat. Exactly. So like a, there's a little bit of order... Uh, sorry, disorder in front of the of the object as it moves because it's in fact inverted and a little bit of order behind it. And um, during pre-production, we actually met with Kip Thorne, who you probably yep. would know that Chris has um, collaborated with on Interstellar. Um, and, um, and we talked with him a little bit about what he felt might happen to a, an object that is inverted, whose entropy was inverted. So... He drew this little diagram anyway that had it was very much like an object with a with a, a wake like a boat with a wake, but in front of it there was this little area of of um, disturbance disturbance and a little area of of um, undisturbed space behind, and then the overall 
weight. So the idea being that there's a sort of there might be a sort of 70-30% pushback of the real world on the invent on, on the impact, the effect of the inverted object. So we we sort of went in with this idea that um, everything would have its own effect and then the world would kind of push back on that. And and so when we have bullet hits and and explosions and things like that, you'll notice, and it's very subtle, but after the initial impact of something like sucking back in and rebuilding, there's this tiny little bit of, of debris falling in in the forwards world, away from that impact. It's almost like if you if you slammed it back in, it would shake the wall and then a little bit of dust would fall out. And that's exactly what we did on that first bullet hit. And we did it, we did shoot it practically, and but in in the end, we did actually end up doing a CG version of that because the shape of the bullet hole and the way that the dust moved wasn't quite the way we wanted to look in the in the end result. So Another great example of that, I think, if I'm right, is the audio. Instead of what I expected, which was a lot of sort of, you know, playing backwards, the sounds were played forwards, but in the reverse order, if that makes sense. So I would get mm. the sequencing in reverse, but I wouldn't just have the whole thing sounding like the soundtrack was being played backwards. And, I mean, like I didn't even notice that in the cinema until I realised that I wasn't listening to reverse audio. I mean, apart yeah. from the dialogue in some of the sequences when that was a plot point, you know, like uh, mm. uh, when they're next to the uh, inversion um, sort of effect. In the red and blue yeah. room. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, for, there's a lot of forwards and backwards talking in there. Yeah. Just, just which, which I, I thought was amusing when I discovered that your working title before the film was uh, up was Merry Go Round, because I thought that was like. <laughs> Just such a uh, an apt um, thing. So okay, so so you're approaching this and trying to work these things out. And as I understand it, not for traditional previous so much as sanity, um, you got together with somebody that I think that you'd worked with on Mad Max on Fury Road, Brody, to do a sort of a Maya three D kind of construction yeah, that, thing. That was very much a. Um, it sort of grew out of very early pre-production kind of experiments. I was looking at the um, the car chase scene and, um, you know, obviously we've got a whole lot of cars driving down a freeway, half of them are reversed and the people in them are, are sort of experiencing this world in the opposite direction in time. There's people jumping from one car to another, transferring, there's things being thrown around. So it was an e extremely complicated um, sequence on the page in the script to to kind of get your head around how those components fit together both in physical space and then to be able to rerun that whole scene again from the reverse point of view with the audience like witnessing all the same events backwards now and knowing um, where to look because we've just seen it forward. yeah yeah exactly and um and so what i did early on was just block that out in Maya with cars, you know, moving the right direction at a reasonable speed along a freeway and, you know, just with little locators moving to represent people to try and block out how that might work in both directions. And it had to make sense for each, each of the people in their own pers perspective, if you like, of the, of the scene. Um, but once we did that and realising that you could scrub 
forwards and backwards in the timeline in a 3D world and, and immediately see how they fitted together for every moment of that. It was so valuable and useful. And, um, and Chris, uh, you know, not, he's never a big fan of previs, really. We don't, and we don't do like camera angles and Technical even things. very accurate layout. It's much more about blocking the scene and just sort of bird's eye view. How do these components fit together in the world and how might we fit that? Like um, logistics that. as opposed to... Uh, yeah, previs. what I actually tend to refer to as technical previs rather than yeah. actual, you know, shot or camera-based. Oh, work. okay. So, um, but yeah, working through that scene with Chris and we all just kind of realised, my God, this is an incredibly useful tool for this particular film to work out, you know, how this how this is going to work. And I re- and and realizing that we needed to do that for pretty much all of the scenes that had a lot of forwards and backwards components interacting. So I um, I got um, Bodhi, who who as you mentioned worked on on Fury Road, to come over and help me with previsiting all of those other scenes. It turned out he had an amazing ability to hold forwards and backwards action in his head probably more than anyone else that we worked with on that show and and he he kind of became the vital person on set all the time with his laptop with Maya on it to to answer any questions about what should be happening here what you know what's going on i was going to ask you that this this seemed to me that this could be a really useful tool for the actors not to inform their performances but just to you know because obviously they are They've read the script, but they're trying to make sure that they're responding correctly. Was it a tool that you shared with them as well as sort of the technical group? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were we had that always available on set, so that anybody who needed to get a little bit of help in understanding what was happening could be shown that particular bit of the world from either point of view. Um, and we didn't kind of re we didn't pre render any of that because it was impossible to cover every possible version of what you might need to see because you could, you you know, if you, as soon as you render, it's only from one person's point of view. So we kept the scene live so you could basically go to any place or person right. or point of view and just scrub through the, the scene in, in 3D. But yeah, we did, um, we, we were kind of sharing that with anyone who needed some help in that department. I mean, it, it was a it was a complicated film to to make from that point of view. I think it got a lot easier when when there are images, and you know it's been shot and, and edited. It's much easier to understand than than straight off the page. I mean, when Memento came out, I thought you know no one will ever top this for for treating the audience with respect that they're not stupid. Until I saw this film, where I was like, "Oh my god, this is uh, yeah. so not speaking down to an audience." Um, yeah, it was. Look, I want to quote something that you said, which I got, like, so I'd like to understand what you meant by this. You said Chris is not a big fan of making everything as perfect as possible, and yet I kind of think he is. Like he makes it marvelous. What, what do you mean by that? Um, I suppose it's. Um... You know, in, in terms of what you're filming, the actual things that we film, he's very good at knowing what matters and what doesn't matter. 
you know, like where absolutely he's a perfectionist in in some ways, but in other ways he's he's very very sensible about not stressing over things that aren't like, for example, continuity of, of, across shots is not the most important thing. A lot of people obsess over it when the audience will never see it. You know, those sort of things, I think. I, I, I think you I were making that remark over somebody asking you about putting in a, um, like a, on, the, on the horizon, the right kind of bit of coast or something. And clearly no one was looking at that. And so clearly it wasn't that it was yeah. wrong. It just wasn't technically right. But who cares? You know what I mean? Yeah, it just wasn't important. Yeah. You know, the, the story wasn't about that. In the, um, the sailing scene, the sail GP hydrofoil yacht scene was set in Amalfi, but we filmed it in... Um, Southampton. Right? In Southampton. And... Um, you know, we changed some of the coastlines to be more similar to Amalfi, but a lot of them we didn't bother because it was just not important enough, not not obvious enough. You know, it's I guess that's a that's a good example of of knowing where to where to put the attention. Um, yeah, because I mean, you can get hung up on those things, and they're not the emotional truth in the scene, and they're certainly not the the audience's need to sort of follow along. Um, though I have to say now, Andrew, you'll forgive me for this, like the one bit of the film that I thought completely took me out of the cinema, just I let you, or my, my daughter who also sails, because I'm, as you know, I sail, <laughs> was when you had one of the, uh, the F-50 suddenly stop to pick up somebody that was overboard. And I'm like, how the hell do you stop an F-50? Like they've got fixed sails. You can't, you just, there's no, uh, there's no engine on them to suddenly like stop the darn thing. There's a shot where it's just stopped like uh, within seconds of somebody going overboard. And I was like, okay, this is the one bit of realism. I'll, I'll buy everything else, time going forwards and backwards, everything else. But you can't stop one of those uh, high-performance yachts uh, on a dime. And uh, so that was my only complaint. You you would have noticed though, that it, it had just done a 180-degree turn. It doesn't matter. You, you Any wind and, on that sucker sitting there in the water, it would have moved off. Okay, well, it, there's a... Um, a little secret that there wasn't actually a sale on it when we did that. I, I read that later, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, so you that was one of the, um, the CG components that we, we added. Well, I mean, in yeah, and also in fairness, like people have actually died on those high-performance yachts because you wear, um, you know, body armour and have uh, emergency oxygen because if they go over yeah. um, and the fastest that they've been clocked at is about 50 knots, which is just extremely mm. dangerous. So yeah, then no way, shape, or form. You, know, you, you, want to you risk can it. stop them. You can stop them dead. You've just got to dig the bow into the water. I think. Well, yeah, and catapult the crew across. And yeah, yeah, yeah no, it's yeah. like, yeah. I mean, look, I yeah, no, even even those guys. even to be on them for filming, we had to go through training. You know how to escape, and we all had to have like. Did you get? Did you get to go on the on the F fifty? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. But I wasn't on it when. With when it was actually sailing, and and a lot of the work that I did was, um, we were towing them with no sail. Yeah. So we were, we were experimenting with camera positions and how to mount cameras on them, and um, and that, yeah, I never went on it when it was actually sailing. But but I mean, just being in the water next to them, we were on really fast ribs, and they were flying past us. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't even a particularly windy day. Yeah. <laughs> I've, uh, they were just phenomenal. 
been on the water watching them in uh, Sydney sail. And uh, I was incredibly impressed that you had them. And then, uh, yeah, I couldn't begin to imagine how you get an IMAX camera uh, on board and, you know, yeah, working. It was just, uh, and then I was relieved to discover that you had some uh, in clever safety protocol of, uh, of towing, which, you know, like worked yeah. on film, of course. But, you know, they did film um, with the real actors on the, on the boat. Yeah, on, but you, one you were filming film IMAX, right? You've got like, what, a yeah. three-minute load on a 1,000-foot man? Yeah. Three minutes yeah. and that's it. You've got to get a catch-up boat to get to the to reload, yeah. I mean, on the water. like um, That's nothing compared to what we did on Dunkirk where we, we were shooting IMAX from a helicopter shooting miniatures flying over the water that was a few miles offshore. So you were going high speed? At, at high speed. <laughs> at high speed. <laughs> How long so did we you have on a load? And a half, we had one and a half minutes load. <laughs> and then and so after you after you shot that, you had to fly everything back to the land. And we were we were operating them from the helicopters. So they had to all the RC planes had to land first and then we had to land the helicopter reload the you can imagine the turnaround time there was enormous. Yeah, and for those people that haven't shot on film, it's one thing to load a 35mm mag, but you've got five perf IMAX, right? Like it's like 15 loading perf. 15 perf. It's an incredibly yeah. uh, complicated load job. Like it's not as if um, threading up an IMAX is just, you know, lock and load. It's, uh, yeah. And, and, of course, if you get it wrong, you, you can, you know, <laughs> Reperf the film and, and ruin cameras and do all sorts of horrible things. Um, yeah, yeah. But that that also would have given you a very rich uh, frame to work with, right? Uh, having said that, uh, I can imagine scanning because you you guys were shooting, if I'm not mistaken, for something astonishing. Like I wrote it down here somewhere, like uh, an astonishing number of days, ninety six shoot days. How much film? Actually, I know that. I, I think I looked it up. It was like one point six million feet of sixty five millimeter film. That's a hell of a lot of scanning. To yeah. get to stuff that you can then use, was it? Yeah, I mean, I guess the short answer is you don't scan much of it. <laughs> yeah, what happens is um, the dailies get printed, and that gets um, telecined. So editorial has a a telecine of the dailies. So because because Chris wants to um, finish everything optically, he doesn't want the negative touched any more absolutely any more than than necessary. So um, so all of the work is really done on that telecine of the dailies print up to the point where it gets scanned either for visual effects to do work or for the, or sorry, I mean, no, ordinarily he doesn't scan it at all unless it's going to be, have visual effects work. Getting back to the um, palindromic fight type sequences where we've got these uh, forward and backwards things happening, as now we know, you were lucky enough to have actors and stunt people that would actually act in reverse while others were acting forwards, which is a remarkable thing. Because like if we were talking about a CG character right now, I'd be asking about how to get the right weight and all these kind of things. And your entire production um, was trying to get that as much as possible in camera so an actor would look like they were walking backwards because the actor was actually walking backwards mm. correctly as an actor. Um, yeah. but but in the fights, especially around, uh, you know, the um, the inversion machine and stuff, was there, or the turnstile, 
were there was there sort of wire tricks that required any work to kind of help with that or the, the, in in essence the way we achieved it was as you say all in camera but it was it was partly from the actors and the stunt people training themselves to walk to walk and perform in reverse so yeah. we would film what they needed to do reverse it and then they would learn that and you know even down to the way that they changed their weight and and the timing of footsteps and um john david was amazing he was so good at, at performing in reverse he could walk up and down stairs and you just couldn't tell the wow. difference but what what we would do obviously if there was something like a person being punched and falling over you couldn't do yeah. that you couldn't perform backwards so we would always film that that would kind of define which one of the performances was going to perform forwards so we would always shift it around so that the the easy bit to do backwards was the bit that we did backwards and it, which might result in us having to reverse the whole film so that became the forwards person and the other one was backwards so it, we basically we shifted it around depending on what the individual um, action was for that particular shot or scene. So, but but yeah, there are very few. There's a few shots in the end battle where there were maybe not enough people in the background doing the right thing, or you know, we we sort of added some more backwards forwards motion in the background. But the vast majority of the film is is in camera. You know, both parts of of that world at the same time, the forwards and the back. Though as much as it was done in camera, and I take nothing away from that, there was one I, I would describe a signature shot in that end sequence, which had to be a visual effects, and I think it was, because we're seeing a building that's both being imploded and exploded in the same, without a yeah. cut. And so I can't possibly see how you did that without visual effects. Well, we did, um, we did have quite a lot of visual effects, but it was... Um, filmed as well. Right, we yeah, built, it was film material. Yeah, yeah. We built two large scale miniatures that were, um, I think, third scale, and and we we sort of actually interestingly we because they were so big. Chris said, "Oh, well, we can put them in the back of the set, and they'll just be background buildings for the rest of the scene," um, which they were, and um, and then we um, so we weren't able to blow them up until the end, till after we'd shot all the rest of that world. So we basically had the two the two buildings, we put a camera in, or two cameras in, in kind of corresponding matching positions and filmed one being blown up at the top, one being blown up at the bottom. And then we combined the two plates so that, you know, we had the beginning of the shot was one and the end of the shot was the other. Right. Um, so, yeah, there, were, there was one scene where one shot where the dust sort of from the explosion kind of obscured a bit too much of them. We had to sort of reinstate a little bit of it with a, a CG component, but the vast majority of it was what, what we shot. If this wasn't a, uh, a Chris slash Andrew film for special and visual effects kind of approach, I would assume that also there'd be some face replacement, like like the um, scene when um, Elizabeth's character cat uh, dives off the yacht I know that that mm. was uh, done with a member of the uh, Red Bull cliff diving team. Um, mm. But in shots like that where it's clearly you need a specialist, or, or for example, when you've got a person on the, the boats we talked about earlier, 
where it would be just yeah. unsafe to have them in that position. You would, in a in an ordinary film, be happy to do a digital face swap. Did you have to do any of that work to kind of sell in a body double? Yeah, we did a couple of face replacements in the sailing scene, um, but I think it was probably only three, maybe. Right. In the, in all of um, where we had stunt performers who were just a little bit too close to camera to to pass. Um. Getting back to the specifics of what we were talking about earlier with the um, with the nature of the inversion, um, I was wondering if you could take us through what happened in, I think it's Barbara's office, like the first time that we have the inversion explained to us. Because when I saw that the first time, I've seen the film twice now, and both times, by the way, I saw it in 65 projected properly. Um, it seemed that that was a relatively easy thing to get away with in reverse and yet i've since discovered that there were rigs with wires and stuff like what what was going on there why was it like just to use that as a sort of a simpler scene to to deal with was that because of what you were discussing earlier in terms of those ripple effects and bow waves of time or what was it that was making that less than just a reversal um no it would have been the um the fact that they were performing and and talking um and dropping thing you know like you can't have something falling backwards and be performing dialogue at the same time. Right. So otherwise, you know, there were there were shots where simple case of dropping something. But also the other thing is that when you drop something, it lands and bounces and rolls around, whereas they wanted to come from a very specific place, like a bullet standing on end up into a hand, oh, actually pulled up instead of like you can't drop it and, and have it land the way you want it to. So that those we had like little you know monofilament rigs pulling them up from um, was there ever a requirement for someone to lip sync themselves in reverse dialogue so that when it was played forwards their dial they could obviously adr the actual dialogue in later do you know what i mean like that trick of me yeah. mouthing my own recording backwards so that i am played well forward. that scene um in the red and blue room next to the turnstile yeah. Kenneth Branagh um, has a lot of reverse dialogue because he's actually speaking into a little recording device that he can then play back reverse so that he can have a conversation with someone in the other in the other direction, if you like. And he learned all his lines backwards. Oh, wow. And he actually, he spoke all of his backwards dialogue. So he didn't just ADR and sort of roughly lip sync, he actually delivered the lines backwards. I'm not sure... How much of it ended up in the film? Um, but on set, it sounded like he was delivering them backwards. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I got a lot of admiration for his performance in this because he's somebody that I really like as an actor and I think he's an inherently a likeable kind of guy and I hated him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is you obviously know, good acting. Not, he's an unpleasant character, that's for sure. In the film, yeah. He's a very unpleasant character. Yeah, yeah, film. no, not in real life. He's very likable. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so was there any other technical stuff to do with the uh, fact that it was shot IMAX? Uh, we've discussed a little bit about that idea of the the process, but just when you were working on it, um, for those few shots that were much more uh, visual effects than special effects, was there anything else? Like, I, I guess the format is pretty comfortable for you guys at DNEG now, right? Yeah, I mean, we've done quite a lot of films in that with that format. And it, I mean, other than that, it adds 
extra resolution like we work at just over 6k and we scan at 8k so we've always got a little bit more if we need to go to the full 8k scans we can do that but um you know everything it ups the level a little bit everywhere you know tracking is slightly more challenging everything needs to be just that little bit better but you know as the the rest of the world is kind of moving to everything we've done pretty much now in 4k anyway you know we're getting closer to it being the same um so yeah i think it it obviously adds a little bit of rendering time everywhere but i would say that um it, it makes a slight difference but not huge yeah. If you were to go back and talk to yourself at the beginning of this project when you were still sort of filming yourself on motorbikes backwards, was there any sort of huge insights that you'd, you'd give to yourself? I'm not trying to be smug, but like literally like lessons learned that you, but of course in the context of this film, you going back to talk to yourself uh, at, uh, at that stage? Um, oh, I don't know. I guess it's like every film we do is, um, is you, I, I sort of describe it as like immersing yourself in a new in a world that you've never thought about before, and and that you know that's one of the things that I love about the the work that we do is that you each new project is a an an opportunity to to really delve deep into some idea or world or or process that you've never even thought about before, and for me that this film was was absolutely that in terms of that sort of dealing with forwards and backwards time in your head and trying to visualize things when they're when they're working in both directions um it was i described it as like um it's like using a muscle you've never used before that you had to exercise and and warm up and and sort of sort of limber up in order to be able to do it and we all got better at it during that time so i mean in terms of um advice to myself at the beginning i don't know i don't know what you what you could have advised people i suppose you could say that you're going to struggle with it initially but don't worry it'll get easier (laughs) because we did actually learn how to do that when we were talking in uh after mad max we were talking generally about the role of a visual effects supervisor one of the things that you went to great lengths to point out is just how keen you were to build bridges to the other department heads. You were just saying, apart from the obvious of being pleasant to work with, you know, how important it was for getting information, how important it was just for a whole lot of reasons. And of course, uh, it was what, Scott Fisher on SFX, right? And I think it was George yeah. uh, Cotty on, uh, on Cotty on Stunts. Yeah, so both of those yeah. must have been people you worked very closely with on this film. Absolutely, yeah. I mean. As always, I'm my, my have a I have a very high priority sort of around that building connections with all the other departments and and absolutely on this film probably more than than any, um, and yeah very close relationship with with Scott who, you know a lot of the work that I do is really working with Scott and his people, and ends up not necessarily having any visual effects or virtually no visual effects component at all it's really and and i guess that's kind of um one of the things i love about working with chris is that we're kind of invited into that world of filmmaking the whole filmmaking process not in a in a visual effects box it's it's like how do we solve this film 
And, and whatever the solutions might be, whether they involve using visual effects or not, is not a, an issue at all. It's like we're all there discussing how the best possible way to to approach this particular challenge. And um, and you know, I'm there helping with all of the different departments solve all of the problems together. So um, yeah, I think it was a it was a really um, a great example of exactly that of being integrated into the the whole process. And so, could, just to use an example of something we haven't discussed, the bungee jumping up the building, right? Like, just take mm. that as a thing. Like that could be done as a stunt. It could be done as visual effects, or it could be done as like special effects with, you know, whatever. Like that must have mm. that must have been a classic case of you guys having to nut out. Well, like who's going to do what heavy lifting where on a shot yeah although um i think very early on it was like chris talking to george and can you do this for real yep okay (laughs) (laughs) that's what they did um they winched people up the side of a building well maybe there's a better example then but it seems to me that there are like a lot of shots that that you had options on right it wasn't just one way to do things yeah notwithstanding yeah. your desire to do them for real, but like even doing yeah. them for real, there's like a number of ways to do them. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, one of the one, one of the shots, I suppose, where we went around a little bit on how to do it was the, um, the final explosion and the, and the ground kind of collapsing into, a, into the hole at the end. And, um, and, you know, obviously that could have been a visual effect. We, I, we talked about finding places where we could film, a, a cliff edge like blowing up a real edge of a rock wall in the in the mine you know where we were in this old mining area um but in the end um chris and i talking together we thought well why don't, why don't we make a a circular kind of rig and cover it in a pile of gravel and drop it in into the into a hole like dig a big hole in the ground and, and make this rig so so that was a really good example of of something that could have been done pretty much anyway, but we did end up in building a quite an elaborate um, circular, sort of like an iris that collapsed with sand on it to fall into that hole. So, and, and ended up being in camera again. Yeah, well, as I said, I, from that, you know, I mean, it always stuck with me from when we were talking about it before. Just this incredible devotion you have to collaboration, um, which I like so admire, and also it just makes you know, the job of filmmaking more enjoyable, right? Which can obviously be a pretty stressful job at the best of times. Mm. Yeah. We did, oh, sorry, can I just jump in? Um, the Chinooks was another really good example because we did actually have various solutions that all got used because there were a lot of um, shots in the end that had Chinooks carrying um, shipping containers around. Yeah. We had, um, we had four real Chinooks that actually carried shipping containers for the end battle, but we didn't know until the very end that we were going to have access to that level of sort of real helicopter action. So Scott and his team built miniatures of the Chinooks that were big, you know, 10 foot long. And um, and we also did CG ones and we did, and we filmed elements. So we we kind of run the gamut of all of the solutions in, in for adding Chinooks to shots there. So there, there are shots, um, that have two full CG helicopters quite close to camera um, when they're lowering shipping containers that we couldn't shoot for real because they had people 
that had to run out of them and they couldn't be flying around with real people in them. And um, and the shots over the boat, the um, icebreaker at the wind farm that used the miniatures taking off. And, you know, we, the visual effects department went to that location on the wind farm and we built ourselves a little mini aircraft carrier <laughs> in order to be able to fly the helicopters from a boat at sea to avoid the problem I was talking about that we had on um, on Dunkirk, where we had to all go back to the land just to reload the camera. And, and you know, this time they were electric um, helicopters, so they their flight time was quite short. We needed to be able to take off and land at sea with these um, miniature helicopters and then and film them. So um, me and the visual effects um, film, we, we have a little visual effects unit which runs our own IMAX camera for shooting elements and various right. things. So we would go ahead and do those sort of shoots um, independently from main unit. Can you explain that a bit more? Because I, I got slightly lost there. I mean, I know the segment you're talking about, but what did you actually have for, for real and what were you doing? Well, we we had a um, one of the support vessels. We built a deck, like a like a mini. So a real deck. real thing. You built a real deck. A real deck on a yep. on a real boat. Yeah. To to use as a as a sort of like aircraft landing helicopter landing pad right. for the miniature planes. Oh, okay. Um, and so that so that we could take the whole lot out to to see where we were filming in the wind farm location. Um, and be able to to land and take off from the boat. Um, right, and that had its own IMAX camera rig and team. Well, we actually had a small um, film unit, the visual effects unit, for the whole of the film, right. of the shoot, you know, where we just had, you know, all the, the basic sort of crew that we could run that um, for, for whatever purpose. A lot of the time we're... We're filming elements that we're going to use for compositing, but you know we'd also go and shoot stuff that was you know we'd kind of move into a location after main unit had finished to pick up a few little bits and pieces, not sometimes for visual effects, sometimes not necessarily for visual effects. Right. Were you doing second unit directing on that, or was there someone else? Well, I was I was directing. So we was definitely not called second unit. Okay. Well, visual effects unit. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I thought the film was magnificent. I thought it was, with the exception of the, the F-50 stopping, yeah. it was faultless. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, only, the only thing that I have a complaint about. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, I, I said I, I had to watch it twice, which I'm sure is, like, not uncommon just to, because when you don't know what's happening, you know, like I walked out of the film the first time and I'm like, I just, I, I just, what the, in that, and I need to remember what the heck was going on there, especially in uh, some of the, uh, the, uh, the raid on the um, on the art uh, Oslo art the vault. yeah yeah the vault that was one that really like the second time I went back I'm like right now I know what I'm looking at let me just see what I'm that, seeing that was one of the ones that we really um, needed that previs tool for because in that scene there are you know two people who who pick locks and go through doors and they're they're concentric corridors around the central vault that they have to cross go through doors into corridors into another corridor through another door and and the whole time they have to avoid the other two of themselves which are going the other way through time around the same place so so there's this sort of crossover where they mustn't meet 
but they also have to have the doors left in the right state so that when the next people get there, it's either locked or, or open, depending on what needs to happen. So solving that little puzzle was quite a challenge, let's just say. I mean, not necessarily that obvious on, on the screen, but but you know, we wanted to make sure that there weren't that it did actually work, you know, that we weren't cheating. Okay. I've known you for like a decade, so I'm going to ask you one question that's incredibly unprofessional. And feel free to not answer it. But at the end, Kat's son at the boarding school, is that Neil? Put me out of my misery. I mean, I, I've only heard this after this theory, after the the film has been out and you know the internet's talking yeah. about it. So so if it if it was ever in for you personally then mind. oh for me personally uh, I don't know there's so many questions <laughs> that that's just one of them I don't know I don't I don't I never thought it never occurred to me during the making of it that that oh that's you know the sequel's going to reveal that this and this and this it, it is the top spinning yeah. from the end of Inception. Um, mm. And I actually asked Paul that question. I was like, does it fall or not? And he said, well, he knew and he wasn't going to let me know. Um, right. So anyway, I'm glad you don't know, I guess, in one sense. Um, leave it up yeah. to the audience to decide. But uh, there's always with these hanging things, that, which is the sign for me of a magnificent piece of entertainment that I'm pondering it and thinking about it for days afterwards. I've, I've never been on a shoot before where everywhere you went there were little clusters of people passionately debating what should be happening or shouldn't be happening in the background of the scene or the you know basically solving the puzzle which which people seem to love doing oh, yeah. is that sort of you know the film is a puzzle and um well art department really, really helped so much with that like i mean just the logo of the art um uh port stuff you know Basically, yeah. is the design of the concentric circles you were talking about, and like all these little like little touches all the way through. Yeah, well, all the way through the film, there's a lot of we went to a lot of effort to to give the audience extra help. You know, the, there's all the color coding of the, the blue and the red, the, yeah, the, the red and the blue, you know, forwards and backwards. There, I don't know, I don't know if you would have picked it up, but it's quite, and it's, it, I guess you could call it subliminal. But in the whole of the end battle scene, there's snow falling or not falling depending on whether you're in the forwards or a backwards world. Oh, really? There's little snowflakes going up to help kind of define which side of the team you're with, as well as they've all got red or, yes. or blue badges. Yes. Um, but, yeah, there's everywhere there's there's a lot of, um, of, of little helping things in there. It, it's not a film that cheats the audience, but it is so visually and conceptually dense that I'm sure if I saw it another two times, I'd still have uh, things that I was getting from it. It was, uh, as I, I say, the least patronising film I've ever seen. I think it was. Um, it's easier watching it, but reading the script, I read it four times, and I, um, I, I thought I had it really clearly in my mind, and I, I think I, um, I, I heard somebody else who's reviewing it saying it was like. It's like um, when you try and explain who your second cousin once removed is, you think you understand it until you have to explain it to somebody else. And you go, oh, hang on a minute. No, I haven't quite got that. So was, this film was very much like that. I, you know, you think you'd have it all in your head and then 
you go to explain it and it's sort of, oh, yeah, no, hang on, I just need to reread that section. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I could stay here all afternoon talking to you with uh, about wonderful scenes. Uh, even ordering of drinks uh, when Neil first appears was just a joy watching the second time. That just the little touches all the way through. So yeah, it is really a beautiful piece of filmmaking. So thanks for taking time to walk us through your your uh, your journey. Well, thank you. Always a pleasure. Well, thanks, guys, for that. Appreciate it. And again, Andrew, we appreciate you taking the time once again to chat with us here at FX Guide. Uh, that's it for this week. Once again, thanks to those of you who are our FX Insider contributors. We really appreciate it. Until our next FX podcast, uh, be safe out there. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.